This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, questions about the front lines in two wars. Can Colombia end its civil war after 51 years? And will Mexico deal with human rights concerns as it prosecutes the drug war? But first, Natalie Ottinger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A war of words this week between front-running presidential hopeful Donald Trump and several presidents of Mexico. Trump has built much of his popularity on his promise to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico to stop unauthorized immigration. The last three presidents of Mexico have all condemned Trump's plans, especially former Mexican President Vicente Fox. Fox says Trump's promises play on racist fears and he has used various curse words when reacting to Trump. Trump fired back during a nationally televised cable debate in the U.S. I saw him make the statement. I saw him use the word that he used. I can only tell you, if I would have used even half of that word, it would have been national scandal. This guy used a filthy, disgusting word on television, and he should be ashamed of himself, and he should apologize, okay? Before he became president of Mexico, Fox was a businessman recruited by Mexico's conservative party. When Fox ran for president, like Trump, many experts criticized his crude language, but that seemed to only endear him more to voters. Fox later said Trump's heated rhetoric and his political rise in the U.S. reminded him of Hitler. For his part, Trump was not only deflecting such criticisms from Fox and his Republican political rivals, but he proved to be the big primary winner in the United States this week, picking up primary wins in seven states to add to his total so far as the victor in 10 states. U.S. President Barack Obama renewed his order for sanctions against Venezuela this week, the same week that anti-government riots broke out in various parts of Venezuela. The riots by student groups were aimed at protesting another order by the Venezuelan Supreme Court. This order stripped the country's National Assembly of any power to approve the appointment of judges. The National Assembly is now dominated by opposition groups, the first time the opposition has held a chamber of government in 17 years. The U.S. sanctions are aimed at Venezuelan government officials that the U.S. says are behind human rights violations in Venezuela. Brazil's Supreme Court this week ruled that the president of that country's Chamber of Deputies can be tried for corruption. Eduardo Cunha has denied charges that he accepted as much as $5 million in bribes connected to construction projects for Brazil's national oil company, Petrobras. Cunha has also accused the court of making a political rather than a legal decision in the matter. Brazil's Chamber of Deputies is the lower chamber of its Congress, and Cunha holds a position similar to the Speaker of the House in the U.S. Cunha has pushed Brazil's Congress to impeach President Dilma Rousseff, saying she has abused her presidential powers. So far, though, those efforts have stalled, as this high-level political battle now seems more focused on the charges against Cunha. (laughs) 
A court in Guatemala served up some long-awaited justice for a group of Guatemalan women, rape victims from the country's civil war that ended in the 1990s. For the first time ever, a Guatemalan court found former members of the country's military guilty of raping indigenous women. Some of the women who pressed charges said the rapes happened while the women were held captive at a military base over the span of 10 months. But some of the women reported they were repeatedly raped by soldiers over the course of more than six years. The court sentenced two former military officers to a combined sentence of more than 360 years in prison and that they must pay a million dollars in restitution to the women. The Academy Awards in the U.S. recognized several filmmakers from Latin America this past week. Cinematographer Emmanuel Chivo Lubezki of Mexico notched his third straight Oscar for cinematography for The Revenants. And The Revenants director Alejandro Inarritu, also of Mexico, took home his fourth award. In an award ceremony filled with controversial references to race and other issues, Inarritu asked for understanding even as the Academy's orchestra tried to drown out his words. There is a line in the film that says, Glass to his mixed race son, they don't listen to you, they just see the color of your skin. So what a great opportunity to our generation to really liberate ourselves from all prejudice and, you know, uh, this uh, 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 tribal thinking and make sure for once and forever that the color of a skin become as irrelevant as the length of our hair. Gabriel Osorio and Patricio Escala took home an Oscar for their film Bear Story, winner in the Best Animated Short Film category. It was the first Oscar ever for a Chilean film. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Although March has long been projected as the month that Colombia would finally find peace, the government of President Juan Manuel Santos recently admitted there would be no final peace treaty in the Civil War by the end of the month. The Colombian government has negotiated with the main rebel group in Cuba for more than three years. That group is the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as the FARC. Recently, those negotiations have hit some snags and... News came in recent weeks that as the FARC withdraws from some areas, a second rebel group is taking their place. These rebels are known as the ELN, the National Liberation Army, by its Spanish acronym. The war has dragged on for more than 51 years and claimed at least 220,000 lives and created about 6 million refugees. We asked Adam Isaacson at the Washington Office on Latin America, WOLA, for his assessment of the peace process. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Uh, the peace process is certainly not falling apart. I mean, if you, if you step back a bit and look at the big picture, they're almost done. They've done the harder things. Um, the, we can go over the things they have left to figure out uh, at the table in Havana. And those things are big enough that, yeah, it's really hard to imagine them making the so-called deadline of March 23rd. Um, that deadline came about back on September 23rd. Um, when President Santos and the head of the FARC shook hands in Havana, they were uh, coming to agreement on one um, sort of sub-element of another agreement, a big one on transitional justice. And they, at the very last moment, agreed that they would say publicly that they would aim to finish this by uh, within six months, March 23rd. Um, it's probably going to slip. Uh, they'll have a some sort of... Um, 
blockbuster accord to sign on March 23rd, but there'll probably still be a lot of loose ends to uh, to work out before the negotiating teams actually pack up their bags and leave uh, Cuba, and that could drag on till June, I would say. So sometime this year, but uh, the March deadline, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, really backed away from that deadline pretty quickly last fall, and and now the Santos government has also backed away. Yeah, the Fox line was, look, the accord we'd signed on um, on September 23rd uh, was on, you know, transitional justice, how to punish the worst human, worst human rights violators. But there was a lot of back and forth over the ensuing months uh, about uh, what exactly would go into that accord. What was released on that day was a document, I believe, was four or five pages long. The final accord on that section on how to attend to victims and their needs was 70 pages long. And that wasn't signed until December 15th. And the FARC leaders had intimated all fall that for us, the six-month clock hasn't started yet. Well, it started December 15th then. And still, even if you don't make March 23rd, a June 15th deadline, six months after that, is still pretty darn good. It means you are still done by mid-year. So the government of Juan Manuel Santos, the, the current president of Colombia, seems to have some problems recently with the FARC, with the rebels. Um, there was the suspension of talks uh, within the past two weeks that um, does it amount to the fact that the that the rebel negotiators were grandstanding a bit, going back and meeting with with uh, with rebel troops and having their pictures taken? Well, what was all that all about? Well, there, it wasn't actually a, a freeze in the talks. I mean, they had taken a break, and it was agreed that you know the FARC leaders, some of the negotiators in Havana, would go back to Colombia during this break. And, you know, we thought with the International Committee of the Red Cross and with the sort of the guarantor governments of the talks accompanying them, go back to their encampments and explain to the troops what uh, the accords were about. Um, and that made all, all the sense in the world, right? You need these leaders to be able to have command and control. And also, um, you need the rank and file to have buy-in if you really expect them to all um, concentrate into zones in the second half of this year and start handing in weapons. Um, so, you know, everybody was for that. It was a smart thing to do. What ended up happening in some parts of the country, um, um, some of the FARC leaders uh, held some public events. They actually weren't on their bases. They were in some towns. Uh, and one place that got a lot of people with their cell phone cameras took lots of pictures of um, some of the lead FARC negotiators in a town in the northeast of Colombia, surrounded by armed guards, mingling with the population and giving speeches. Uh, that, of course, uh, and, and of course, no uh, evidence of, of the Colombian government or its military or the international companies anywhere in sight. So that, for a lot of Colombians, especially Colombians who oppose the peace talks, they made a maximum um, noise about this because it was an image of uh, didn't we have a whole peace process to avoid um, having the FARC be able to do this? Um, and in response to that, I mean, President Santos took an enormous beating in the media and in public opinion. He gave uh, some comments saying, no, I'm going to hold very hard and fast to this March 23rd deadline. Uh, it's an ultimatum, and I'm happy to get up from the table if we don't figure something out by March 23rd. So, um, again, they may sign an agreement that's not complete, but that increases the pressure to sign something that's a blockbuster on March 23rd or right around March 23rd. I think that they have to go into the big room in Havana, close the door, and pretty much not come out until everybody has, you know, 10, ga 10 days gro beard growth and uh, they smell bad and they haven't slept and just get this accord done, um, or at least as close to done as possible. 
I should add, March 23rd, it's an interesting date because it's either, um, because even though not on my calendar in front of me, it's uh, one or two days before President Obama is supposed to be on his historic trip to Cuba. Um, it was thought at one point that uh, maybe President Obama could even be on hand for the signing of the big March 23rd accord. Well, it's possible that he could be on hand for a rather major accord if they do manage to close themselves in and get a significant accord done in time. Let me ask about President Santos. Uh, he has staked his entire presidency on this. Uh, he won re-election on the fact that he could deliver the peace. He's been to the White House asking President Obama for help. Um, where does he stand politically? Um, he, he would come off as one of the greatest Colombian presidents if he could finalize this deal and end this 51-year-old war. Yeah, I mean, President Santos is in a, uh, an interesting political position. I mean, internationally, his stature is very high. I think he had a pretty successful visit to Washington during the first week of February, um, managing to show back home that there was widespread support in both parties for what he was doing uh, in terms of peace. He and perhaps he and the FARC leaders are, prob are very high on the short list for uh, the next Nobel uh, Prize, should they actually reach an accord. Uh, not a lot of places, not a lot of other candidates to choose from right now, given that uh, there's uh, conflict, uh, conflicts are worsening so much in so many other parts of the world. At home, it's tougher. Um, the piece, the idea of negotiating with the FARC was only ever marginally popular in, in Colombia. You've almost never seen polls show more than 60% in favor of the endeavor. And um, the opposition, mainly uh, former President Alvaro Uribe, who's still popular in Colombia, have taken every opportunity to beat Santos up uh, about appearing to be soft against terrorism um, and uh, being portrayed as stopping security policies that were, were weakening the FARC, whether that's true or not. Um, on top of everything else, uh, Santos is not always the most charismatic guy. He is a gaff-prone uh, um, political leader. Um, he has a reputation perhaps for being uh, uh, more pragmatic uh, than trying to actually stand for things. Um, and he sort of had to be in order to knit together a coalition of parties that often have very different views uh, to back him in Congress and get laws passed. Um, and on top of everything else, uh, Colombia is not at all immune to the economic downturn that uh, Latin America's commodity-dependent economies are suffering from. Uh, Colombia's national budget, um, about, I don't know the numbers in front of me, three to third, almost a quarter of Colombia's national budget was oil revenue, and it has just about completely disappeared. Um, and, you know, uh, other commodities that Colombia produces are also down, and the peso is incredibly weak, weaker than I've seen it in my 20 years of working on Colombia. So where they're going to get the money to pay for peace accord implementation, much less to keep the economy afloat, all of that is, is hitting uh, President Santos's popularity pretty hard. It's not disastrously low, but most polls have him in roughly the, the 30 to 40 percent range in, in favorability. So I wonder about some of the things that you've warned us about here on this program in the past, that even once we get to a piece sometime this summer, that there are things to be considered, uh, not just aid for education and development in the rural areas in Colombia, but, but more for also for this demobilization and how can we guarantee that um, all of the rebels go home. And there's also another rebel group that, that isn't coming to the table uh, completely yet. I, I think some negotiations are going on with the ELN, but that is not wrapped up. Right. I mean, uh, peace, a peace accord in Colombia uh, may not mean peace per se in Colombia. Uh, you've got um, anyway, the large, it, it, you know, Colombia's larger problem 
um, and it's a historic problem, is vast areas of national geography that know almost zero government presence. The people who run Colombia just haven't bothered to be there. And there's other vast areas where even if there is a government presence, the local government authorities are fully in the sway of whatever armed group runs that area, whatever organized crime group is, is the most powerful there. Um, and the peace accord gives Colombia an opportunity to try to more easily get that government presence in and start administering um, many of these rural areas, especially where the FARC has historically been dominant. And that could, you know, increase likelihood for peace in, in, in pretty dramatically if Colombia proves to be up to the task of actually governing and, and uh, implementing all of the things it's committing to in the peace accords. It would be r radical in a lot of coca growing areas if all of a sudden people had land titles and access to credit and farm-to-market roads and you know a, a police they could trust and a justice system enforcing the rules. Oh my goodness. Um, that is what Colombia needs. It's what every citizen should expect of his government. However, um, that's some areas of the country and that is still a big if whether that's going to happen. And meanwhile, you've got in all of these ungoverned areas, the ELN guerrillas, whom um, you just mentioned, the, uh, Colombia's second largest and similarly mid-1960s vintage guerrilla group, which has at least 2,000 members. Um, there have been at least 200 days of informal talks between the Santos government and, and the ELN. 200 days of talks, I mean, not counting rest times. And they still haven't been able to come up with a formal um, agenda and setting for the talks to happen. And in fact, Word is that they haven't actually had even informal talks since, I believe, November of last year. Things are, are, are bad. And, of course, the ELN, if, if it remains out in the field and not in, in some sort of process, could absorb a lot of uh, FARC members who maybe their leaders told them it's time to demobilize, but they would rather stay out and, and remain in the struggle. Um, they could as well They could as, well as could um, standard organized crime. There's... Um, uh, Colombia still is a you know the number one producer of cocaine in the world, and there are a number of groups, most of them inherited from the old pro-government right-wing paramilitary groups of the 1990s and early 2000s. A lot of mid-level leaders of those groups stayed in the field, um, did not uh, fully demobilize, and came to head their own uh, regional cr so-called criminal bands, or they call them Bakrim in, in, in Colombia. They are more these days about narco-trafficking and illegal mining and, and getting illegal money and pushing people off their land so they can have the nice land and things like that, um, more than they are, say, supporting any kind of political project. Their leaders tend to be much lower profile, and, and they are more interested in criminal activity, but they too could be uh, as alongside the ELN trying to uh, occupy formerly FARC dominated areas, key drug trafficking corridors, areas of illegal precious metals mining and boy uh, the possibility for conflict to fill those vacuums is enormous the possibility for the state, whatever state exists there being corrupted by all of these new groups, for all of them either fusing or recruiting each other's fighters um, and growing is huge and it won't get as much attention from the rest of the world even though it could be more violent than what we're seeing today because it's not a traditional armed conflict about ideology or somebody trying to take over Bogota um, it will get the kind of attention that Guerrero Mexico gets or that San Pedro Sula Honduras gets where it's organized crime just completely um, eating up and digesting the state and um, and and the violent competition around the control of all of that um, it will you know that that's the nightmare scenario is that the the near future and post accord colombia is many areas with very high homicide rates like what we're seeing um in many other parts of latin america where some 
provinces or states almost become failed states within the state. Thanks so much, Adam Isaacson of the Washington Office on Latin America. WOLA, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks for being on Latin Pulse again. That was a pleasure, Rick. It was good to talk to you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Last month's papal visit to Mexico helped expose new corruption charges aimed at that country's Catholic hierarchy and the government of President Enrique Peña Nieto. The Pope faced criticism, too, for not meeting with the parents of 43 students who went missing in the state of Guerrero in the fall of 2014. We asked Eric Olson to give us his assessment of human rights concerns in Mexico. Olson is the associate director of the Latin America program of the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, D.C. He joined us from D.C. via Skype. Sure, this is really this horrific case of the missing 43 students that the government at one point uh, said, you know, they had uh, determined the quote-unquote historic truth about what happened and claimed that these 43 students were uh, turned over to drug cartels and burned at a municipal dump uh, not far from uh, Iguala and Guerrero. The thing that's been problematic about that is since the government has declared this historic truth, there have been two outside investigations that have basically said there's no physical evidence that the students were burned at this dump. And so that goes to the heart of the question uh, for many people in Mexico. Is the government con- con- uh, determined to get to the bottom of this and find the truth wherever it lies, or are they really trying to come up with some kind of a narrative that protects their image, that suggests uh, that they're doing everything without actually holding uh, people accountable. And there's just deep concerns in Mexico about the fact that the Peña Nieto government is less committed to, to the, you know, finding the truth and getting to the bottom of it and more about managing their image uh, related to this case. Is this case also um, points to the need for the government to not ask pointed questions of people in the military or in the police establishment or in the justice establishment who, who may have been tied to this case in questionable ways? Well, yeah, that's the other element here. There, there's clear evidence that the military was present and in the area. They had a base in the area. No one's accusing them of direct involvement. But the outside independents have simply asked for the ability to sit down and take testimony from the military personnel there. And the government has resisted that, has not allowed for that kind of direct questioning. Uh, And again, this sort of feeds the perception in Mexico that the government is more about protecting itself and its image than getting to the bottom of this horrific case that disturbs everybody. This has become um, uh, more than a cause to love. It has become a a movement in Mexico. Uh, This case started 18 months ago, and and often these cases come and go. 
whether the military is involved directly or not in some sort of human rights violation. But this one seems to have grabbed the imagination of Mexicans. And I wonder um, why you think that that that, that is so. You're right. Uh, uh, people have for a long time been suspicious. What's different about this case is you have two highly credible outside groups looking at what happened at that dump and concluding that the government's own historic truth can't possibly be the case. Uh, one of them is connected to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. The other group is the Argentine forensic team, world-renowned forensic analyst, and they both concluded the same thing. So people have a perception that the government is protecting itself, is not being forthcoming and telling the truth. And then you have two highly technical, very credible outside groups saying exactly the same thing. And so it gives a sense of, you know, these aren't just suspicions. This may be, in fact, a cover-up. And that's, that's what's so worrisome and uh, driving this issue long-term. How would you compare this current government to the Panista governments, to the, the National Action Party and, and what they, how they ran Mexico for 12 years? Some would argue that this drug war was, was, was really rolled out by the last administration, uh, a right-wing administration that wanted to show um, some force. And, and you could even trace some of that back, the, some of those policies back to the Fox administration. So um, how do you compare these two? In terms of the uh, prosecuting the war on drugs, um, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, Peña Nieto promised a different approach, um, but the reality has been it's not that different. It's a continuation. You know, at that level, I wouldn't say um, there were significant differences. The difference with the PAN uh, and the way Felipe Calderon operated was there was less centralized control. Uh, there was less uh, control from the Ministry of Governance, the Gobernación, the all-powerful political ministry. Uh, and, you know, some people rightly say, well, that meant, you know, um, governors uh, taking charge that didn't have the capacity to deal with cartels and cartel violence. It's putting uh, them in charge in a way that they're not prepared to be in charge, and that led to chaos. There's no question that there were downsides to that model. The difference now is that there's more centralized control. Uh, at one level, that could be positive, that you have a centralized strategy and, and way of uh, prosecuting this war against cartels. But the reality is that war doesn't remember, it wasn't changed all that more, much. It still focuses on catching cartel leaders, uh, kingpins, we know that that's, you know, a fleeting success, if you will. Chapo is back in jail, um, but the violence ticked up 10% last year. Uh, you know, I think that they're still pursuing the same model, maybe more in a more coherent, centralized way, way but the model itself remains largely the same. Uh, I think it's important to remember uh, in the case of Mexico, which is really a, a, a large country, uh, that this is not the, the, the conflict and the violence associated with drug trafficking and cartels has always been primarily a localized phenomenon. We tend to think about Mexico as a violent place, but frankly, Mexico's overall homicide rate nationally 
is not too bad and below the, the regional average. Where it skyrockets is if you look at individual states, Michoacan, Guerrero, Tamaulipas, these states have historically high rates of homicides because you have local cartels, uh, local criminal networks that are extraordinarily difficult to uh, get under control and stamp out. Thank you so much, Eric Olson, the Latin America program of the Woodrow Wilson Center, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much. I'm always glad to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for Latin Pulse. And now a programming advisory. We'll be taking several weeks off for spring break, and we plan to be back online Friday, March the 25th, with analysis of President Obama's historic trip to Cuba. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Henty Flow. Latin Pulse is also now available through the website Latin America Goes Global. You can find that website at Latin America Goes Global, written as all one word, dot O-R-G. And as always, you can find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website. You can find it at Link TV, all one word, dot O-R-G, and then slash Latin dash pulse. That's linktv.org slash Latin dash pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Natalie Oninger and technical director Jim Singer, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2016 Las Rocas Productions.